everyone. Welcome to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chong. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well. I got a wonderful episode to share with you today as I speak with Aramhan Sifuentes, a fiber and social practice artist, writer, and educator who works to center immigration and disenfranchised communities. Her work often revolves around skill sharing, specifically sewing techniques, to create multi-ethnic and intergenerational sewing circles, which become a place for empowerment, subversion, and protest. Aram got her BA in Art and Latin American Studies from the University of California, Berkeley, and an MFA in Fiber and Material Studies from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, where she is currently an Associate Professor Adjunct. Aram's energy is infectious, and I found myself laughing a lot with her in our discussion as we chatted about growing up in rural California, protest banners, voting rights, and political literacy among immigrant communities. Aram also just opened with a solo show at Mocha Cleveland. So go check it out if you're in the area. It's a show I would like to be able to see before it closes in the summer. Otherwise, sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy this. <laughs> it's all good. Are you on break right now? Because I know you're an adjunct at uh, SAIC, right? Yes. Yeah, we have another week before school starts. Oh, geez. But I have a uh, six and a half year old, so I've been up. <laughs> That's a lot of work. Well, at least you get some more sleep than like one to two years, right? Yeah. Luckily, my kid has never really had an issue sleeping. So okay. I'm very fortunate to say that I'm, as a parent, not very sleep deprived. So. Okay. That's good. Very lucky. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I was also, oh, right before we were talking, I was talking with Carol Zoe and she was like, oh yeah, Aram's awesome. I think you like her. So I'm excited to also just talk with you. And as I was looking through your work today and doing the research, I was, you know, really excited to talk to you a bit about, you know, all the different types of ways of working that you're doing and the way that you do community engagement and, you know, your work with fiber. And so those are some of the things I would like to get into. Yeah, that's a, I might give a really long answer, but. <laughs> well, I know you're born in Seoul. I mean, we can yes, start there. So I'm born in Seoul. Um, I moved to the Central Valley in California when I was five and a half years old. And my mom was actually an artist. Yeah, she still is an artist, but she was trained as an artist in Korea. And she was an art educator as well. Mm. And my dad was like a businessman, right? And then we moved <laughs> to the U.S. and we landed in, like I said, the Central Valley. And there's such a tiny, tiny Korean community there. And they didn't know what they would do for work. And somebody who owns a dry cleaning store, you know, said they would train them and hire them part time there. Mm. And so that's what they started to do. Then they opened up their own store and did that. And my mom, you know was doing alterations and was the seamstress at the store. So, you know, I always say that she didn't want to teach me how to paint, which is her field, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, like yeah. landscape ink paintings is what she does. And she didn't want to teach me how to paint 
but she didn't want me to become an artist. Mm-hmm. But then she had <laughs> she taught me how to sew, you know, and yeah. that was just because we really, you know, my mom would go to work and then bring like bags of clothes home uh-huh. because she still had to work on it, you yeah, know. Yeah. And so she would be like ripping out zippers while watching TV or like, uh, you know, yeah, undoing yeah. the hems or mm-hmm, sewing mm-hmm. holes. And so we would all contribute in this kind of way. And that's how I learned how to sew when I was six years old. Uh, and so you're good. Yeah, I think so. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I was sort of forced into it, but um, <laughs> yeah. And then I didn't know that I would want to be an artist, you know, mm-hmm. until, so I went to UC Berkeley for undergrad okay. and I actually got a degree in Latin American studies with a focus on immigration. And wh- why did you pick that? You know, I still ask myself that, but I think <laughs> my my answer is, um, yeah. I think in being immigrants ourselves, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Also, I think growing up in the Central Valley in California was so important for me in thinking about immigration and seeing it, right, is because mm-hmm. it's where, you know, we have the most productive farmland in the entire mm-hmm. United States. Yeah. And so growing up in that context, you know, the town I grew up in is like more than 50% Latinx. Uh-huh. And a lot of that's because it's farmland, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of, you see the migrant laborers, you see undocumented workers, like you see all of that. It's so present and visible there. Yeah. And so I think because I grew up in that context where there were like so few Asian Americans, particularly like Korean Americans and Eastern Asians, right? There's yeah. so few yeah, yeah. that it was like, you're either white or you're like Latinx, Latinx right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so in my schools, even in high school, like we were learning a lot of like Latin American history, Latin American literature. And I just like love the counter narratives. Mm. I loved, mm-hmm. you know, the revolutions that were happening in these countries. Mm-hmm, like I was mm-hmm. so excited by all of that, that when mm-hmm. I got to college, I continued to dive into that, mm-hmm. you know? And I think, you know, being from California, like if you're an immigrant, people think you're from Mexico, right? Mm-hmm. Or from Central America, if they are generous. But yeah, yeah. a lot of times, you know, so then also being very excited and interested to learn about immigration policy, I started studying Latin American studies. And yeah, like now when I look back, I'm like, why did I never take an Asian American <laughs> studies class? Like, that's so stupid, you know? But mm. I just didn't quite know, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So in college, I started just taking like some elective art courses, right? Just for fun. And they were really fun. And then I kept taking them. And then I had these two incredible mentors uh-huh. in ceramics, actually, Richard Shaw and Aaron Toole, who are still very dear to me. Uh-huh. And I still don't know why either, but they like, they just were so nice to me. Just you? <laughs> They're nice to a lot of people. Okay. They were really nice okay. to me. Okay. And you know, when I look back at the art that I was making, it's really cringy. You know? <laughs> I think that's I'm for like, all, oh, the, all wow, of us. All of us. That was bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. But they were always super supportive and they would invite me out to lunch all the time mm. with them and their friends and their like famous artist friends. Like later on, I'm like, oh my God. Yeah, you I met no this idea. person. Yeah, yeah. And I just like love that community, right? It, people were so interesting and weird and like really, you know, passionate about their creations and their mm-hmm. community. And like, I don't know, it was just such a warm environment that I was like, I really love this. I really want 
to be a part of this. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, these professors really made me feel like that I belong there too, you know, and I think that's so important. Yeah, that um, is. And so like, I'm so fortunate to have that. And then Aaron Toole, he's a veteran and he throws these cups with war imagery on him and gives them out to people for free. And the idea is, you know, that for most people, we don't have a close connection to war, mm-hmm. but it never enters our home. Yeah. Yeah. And so to make these cups with those images, then we have this like more intimate relationship right. with war and it enters our home and it's right. And you drink from it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. so thinking about seeing that practice and seeing how political it is and that gesture is just so simple, but I think so profound. And yeah, yeah. I was like, wow, you know, with my interest in politics, I was like, art is so political, you know, and I'm really interested in how art can address these issues, yeah. you know, cause I was like, maybe I'll go into immigration law, but then, you know, it's still like, you're part of the system. Democratic yeah. thing. Yeah, like, yeah. Exactly. Right. And you have to learn to deal with it in that sort of way. And I was like, maybe art is more interesting for me in terms of like creating these profound gestures yeah, or creating your own tools. Exactly. So that's how I got interested in art. And then. And was your mom worried at this point since she spent so much time getting you away from art? Yeah. She was? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I would say my parents are not very traditional immigrant Asian American parents. Like they're actually really chill. Okay. They like are really supportive. They want me to be happy. They want me to do me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They're a bit different, you know? Of course they want a lawyer and doctor in the family, of course. But they were like not very pushy about it. But I do think that it was like they were really upset when I told them I wanted to go into art. (laughs) Yeah, like they they normally aren't like that, but they were very upset, especially yeah. my mom. You know, she was just very worried. And then one day she was like crying and telling me she was like, I sew every day so that you don't have to do that same work. Mm. But that it that you choose to do that really hurts me, yeah, yeah. you know, because I know that this is like really hard on the body. And it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard work and I don't want you to do that, you know, and so. I understand. Yeah, they were pretty upset, but they were supportive still. You know, they sort of like bit their tongue and was like, okay. Do you have a brother or sister who can take that spot? Yeah, I do have a sister. Does she help out with the lawyer, engineer, doctor? She's like in business. Yeah. So. Okay. Yeah, somewhat, you know, but, (laughs) but yeah, they, um, they were upset. Yeah. And I decided sort of late to be exact. It was like a month before graduating from undergrad that I was like, mm-hmm. I'm going to do art now. <laughs> and so my dad was like, well, if you're going to do art, you need to go to grad school. Right. And I was like, of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But of course, deciding a month before graduating from undergrad, I had like no portfolio yeah, ready. Like, yeah. Right. 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 right yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it took me a couple of years and then I got there, but yeah, my parents are now, super excited and like very proud of me and my mom now often collaborates with me in my practice so like you know that shifted Mm -hmm. I think what they needed to see was that you know I think a lot of people don't understand that there are opportunities for artists that there can be financial stability for artists you know they just hear that you know it's so unstable and it's like financially unstable that I think that's what my parents were really worried about 
right? Yeah, yeah, I know. I think, like you said, it takes time because I think it's like this field that at least, I mean, your mom's in painting, so she knows a little bit more, but for my parents, they're like this empty hole that they don't know anything yeah. about, right? Like my dad's like, oh, okay, so you get a show, so when do you get a raise? And I'm like, <laughs> mm, it doesn't really work like that. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> right, so they don't really know. I mean, I think it helps. It took me, you know, a few years, but like, I have a teaching job and so they're like oh okay you're a professor so like there's like a social status of a professor and like there's this idea of stability although as we all know like um, education and academia is sort of in a weird spot right now you know in terms of money and everything so I'm not sure there's any less stable but you know all those things kind of show some sort of trajectory I think that until that happens they don't really know what's going on yeah yeah I spend a lot of time my parents just like trying to tell them and show them what's available to artists you know and you can tell that it really does Uh surprise them that they're like oh I didn't know there was such a thing like mom dad I'm working on (laughs) these grant applications now because like the city or like the state has like money that they support artists with they're like we had no idea right and so i think it's just like they're scared because they like you said it's something so foreign and unknown to them you know and we just keep hearing like starving artists starving artists and it's like no no you know some of that's true but a lot of that is also you know, a mythology, I think. So let me show you what is out there, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so and your parents are still in Central California? Yes. Okay. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. <laughs> do you hate that area? You know, it's like, yes, I do hate that area. Because, okay. I mean, you know, this is right after me saying how formative it was for me yeah. to be who I am, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's very Republican. They're definitely like signs for like gun and ammo stores, like mm-hmm. everywhere I yeah. go, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. like, mm-hmm. um, you know, the reason that I live in cities is not necessarily because I love cities, right? Because I grew yeah. up on a ranch. I like love that setting actually, you know? Wait, so is your parents at a ranch and ran a laundromat? My aunt had a ranch, so we lived uh, with her okay. for some years. Yeah, uh, so, okay, okay. you know, and like that was so exciting as a kid to like yeah, yeah. run around and mm-hmm. like acres of land mm-hmm. with cows and sheep and yeah. dogs and, you know? And, it was and like, the sky. Yeah, it was so fun. Like my aunt would give me a bucket in the morning and just be like, the cherries are ready. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah, So I remember I would spend days just like I would climb the tree. I would just sit there for like the entire day. And if I got hungry, I would like eat the fruit and then like sit there again and like (laughs) climb higher up on the tree. I was like, dang, (laughs) you know, I was like, live like a monkey for But yeah, so that was like exciting. And I'm not quite a city person, but I live in cities because I want to be around people that look like me. Yeah, I understand. (laughs) I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, I was talking to my cousin and we were talking about, you know, growing up in the Central Valley. And we were talking about how like literally every day of our lives, there was always something racist said to us, like directly to our face. Yeah. And oftentimes that being like, go back to your own country, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Or making fun of our eyes or mm-hmm. like very direct or the food racism. 
Or the food. Yeah, yeah exactly. The food smells. And I think we just got so used to it. Yeah. Right. You know, I'm not joking when I say it was literally every day. Right. And my yeah, parents, yeah. like I see them and they still experience that very regularly. Yeah. Right. And so I don't want to go back to that. I hate that place, you know? <laughs> so yes, it is unfortunately that my parents still live there. However, now there's like a really big, vibrant uh, Sikh community okay, where yeah. my parents live. And okay. so like it is much more diverse than when it was when right. I was growing up. Right, right. So it is different to some extent. Yeah. But I prefer cities. Cities. Lots of people of color. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lots of, you know, black and brown and all, all the colors. Yeah. So from Berkeley, then did you, you took a year off to work in your portfolio before getting your MFA at RNC Chicago? I took two years off. Okay. I was like a part-time working at a restaurant and managing at the restaurant and then working on my portfolio. Then I went to MICA for a post-bac. Okay. And then I went to SAIC uh, for fiber and material mm-hmm. studies. Okay. And how was that? It was getting bad. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> well, all right, well, well, what was the good about it and what was the bad? Okay. So School of the Artists in Chicago in the fiber department. Um, wait, maybe uh, I'll what, start with the... When you, what year did you go? 2011 to 2013. Oh, I knew... I think she came later. I know. You know Yvette Mayorga? She was in the mm-hmm. fiber. Oh, you know her? Yep. 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 Was she in your yeah, year? It, she was after. So we had no um, uh, okay. overlap, but okay. we are friends yeah oh, okay all right yeah <laughs> so i think the bad was there are very few people of color in my department you know and i've always been making work about immigration and race politics yeah. and that's not true like once i got to saic i started making that and anyways so that's not really true but <laughs> yeah so at saic i was always making work about race politics and immigration and I was constantly being told not to do that that was really rough right Mm, because most of the faculty I had and particularly in the fiber department you know they're very white Mm -hmm. and so they were telling me this is very 90s of you to make work like this really 90s yeah (laughs) oh it's already been done before Uh, uh, so why are you making work about you know racism it was you know obviously it was like during the obama era as well so people kept talking about it like post-racial exactly right yeah and i was like no i'm making this because it's a thing you know yeah 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 and so i didn't get much support and rather i got a lot of criticism from my own department however the good is that grad school is such a magical moment Mm-hmm. Where you're like really focused on your practice. And yeah, yeah. And you're older. You're, older yeah, than you're undergrads. Around, yeah, the cohort, you yeah. know, not just my cohort, but like the MFAs at that time, just like yeah. spending infinite hours in the studio and yeah, yeah. making friends and Going getting to bars to after. Exactly. I love, yeah. I love all that, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. you know, and I've made some really good friends from that. And so that's the good. And then the other good is that, you know, over time I found the faculty at the school who can support my work, mm-hmm. you know, and like can have those conversations about race and identity and immigration with me. And so those faculty you know, were so incredible and became, you know, and, and like they're my friends and colleagues now. Right. And like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I found some really great mentors and friends. And, you know, I think those are the things that I really loved about grad school and beyond. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I guess when you first came, you were kind of discouraged, but by the end you went back or you just kept the entire way through dealing with uh, race politics and immigration. And Yeah. Yeah. And I just ended up sort of zoning. I just learned in grad school, like, okay, I need to zone these people out. <laughs> and then here are the few people that I really trust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I will really talk to you. But these people, I don't care what they say. I'm just going to them out. <laughs> that was really healthy. <laughs> it's important. It's really important, I think. Yeah. But I mean, what was also like really strange and shocking, I think, because I read a lot of your work online, you know, you wrote, you, you are very prolific at writing different texts and different essays. And I was reading how you, you wrote this one essay about the same exact issues that your students are dealing with, right? And all the questions that they're asked, you know, why is this important? Are you fetishizing your own culture? And so sort of like these issues, they never seem to go away. And so, you know, I think about it also for myself, thinking about how these are some of the things that I wish someone told me, but at least now. I can at least try to help out students who have these sort of questions. But I guess, so you were doing fiber in SAIC, and then how did this idea of collaboration sort of enter your work? Or has it been there from the start? Because I noticed a lot of your work is very collaborative in a wonderful way. But for me, it took me a while to sort of understand what that was like in an art context. So I'm curious how that happened for you. Yeah. You know, when I think back, you know, I was like that total cliche Berkeley kid who Mm -hmm. was uh, very politically active. Okay. Yeah. You know, and organizing all the time. Right. And so Uh I think back to that. I'm like, wow, like these were real skills that I learned Mm -hmm. that like I kept in my back pocket. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah, in the beginning, when I went to grad school and when I was making art for a while, it wasn't that. Right. It was very much me and my studio creating, you know, paintings and drawings and objects. And I think the really exciting moments did happen in grad school, you know, and also being in Chicago, where I think social practice or community engaged work is so supported and so vibrant here, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think just being exposed to what art can do, it took me a while to sort of understand And I was like, wow, like that can be art, you know, this background that I have in like political activism, like, oh, some of that can be seen as art, you know? And so I think I started thinking more broadly about it and then realizing like it could be so many things. And Mm -hmm. then the main important piece that I made that sort of pushed me in that direction was Amend, where I was collecting scraps from local seamstresses and tailors. Okay. Jean scraps. And I sew them together into sort of this big net like quilt. Mm-hmm. And it really happened sort of organically where my mom sews a lot of jeans. And so I started collecting some of her cuffs. Okay. They're like really beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. And she always just throws them away at the end. And so I started collecting them and then I brought some with me to Chicago. But of course, like a tote bag worth, right? Oh, okay. So it's All like, right. yeah. there's not much I could do with like this amount of material. A really great mentor I had in grad school, Jin Soo Kim. Okay. Right? So she's Korean American and was in the sculpture department. She was like, you need to get more of this material. And I was like, maybe I'll have my mom ship them to me. And she's yeah. like, why would you have your mom ship them? Do you know how many like seamstresses and tailors there are? How many of them are Korean that are around here? And I was like, right. And she was like, let's go out together and let's ask them for that. Okay. How's your Korean? It's pretty good. Um, my speaking is pretty great. Just because I think growing up in the Central Valley with no Koreans around, my parents had this rule of like no English in the house. Well, that's, my mom and dad didn't do that. So I lost my Chinese 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty lucky that my parents like knew to do that. Of course, it was annoying because I would ask them <laughs> things in English. And I'm sure your parents were also annoyed to having to <laughs> have another rule. My mom specifically said, I didn't have to have another rule. I have like three kids living in New York City, trying to get food on the table. The last thing I want is like another rule, having you get angry at me. So that's what she told me. So that makes total sense. Yeah, I totally understand that. Yeah, but I remember <laughs> being like asking my parents things in English. Yeah, and then yeah. they're like, pretend like they didn't hear me. <laughs> and I'm like, I know you understand me. <laughs> but they are both Tauruses. So their stubbornness uh, won out, you okay. know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're more stubborn than me. So I gave in. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And so with the help of Jinsu, and it was funny because like we didn't know which ones were Korean. We just started going uh, to random yeah, dry cleaners right, right, around. Right. And out of 23 of them, 20 were Korean, you know? <laughs> wow. That's, that's that's a good percentage. <laughs> yeah. We just started visiting them and then talking with them and mm-hmm. showing them the project and then asking them for their gene cuff. So with that project, it really helped me to step outside mm-hmm. and visit you know, yeah. these people outside of the studio and collect material and cre- collect these stories. And yeah. And so that was a really important piece for me to like get me working in that kind of community based way. And then I found it really exciting and fun. And I learned so much that I didn't know, you know, mm-hmm. myself. Right. Yeah. 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 And so then I just kept working that way. But what happened with all the cuffs then? Oh, I made I made like a big quilts and sculpture out of them and a couple smaller ones with like excerpts of stories and Mm -hmm. I took pictures of people's hands and so like embroidering those into the the smaller quilts I made sort of a chart of like some of the basic and questions that I would ask and then their answers so Mm -hmm. questions being you know they were all immigrants so like where did you immigrate from, you know? Mm-hmm. And then how long ago did you come to the United States? Mm. How long have you been doing this type of work? I think the really interesting question for me was like, what type of work were you doing before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was so interesting because, you know, as we know, people who are given visas or green cards are very highly educated, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just their degrees just don't transfer over. Right, right. And so, yeah, it was like many teachers and nurses and graphic designers and a few artists too, which is really mm. great to find. Yeah. Yeah, so I have a chart of their answers and it gets exhibited with the sculpture oh, nice. as well. Yeah. So after graduating from SAC, what happened? Did you stay in Chicago? Were you sort of, I know you've done a lot of residencies, quite a number of them all over the U.S. and it's taken you, I assume you like traveling. Yeah. You know, what happened after SAC? I started teaching part-time right away. Oh, really? Okay. At SAIC, you know, actually during my grad school years, I was actually working at the writing center at SAIC because I went to Berkeley. So I'm an excellent writer. (laughs) You mean like helping people? <laughs> you know? Yeah, helping people with their writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as you can see in my practice, like now that I write occasionally, like I really love writing. That's good. I don't I don't like writing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do it. I think I've gone pretty decent. I don't, I don't want to like say I'm good, but I practice it. But I don't enjoy the process. How's that? It's excruciating for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my stomach hurts the whole time when I'm writing. I know. I just stare. Yeah, I just, it's hard. It's it gives hard. me the weirdest sleep cycle. Like, you yeah. know, just like 
I'm on a different planet when I have like a writing deadline. I know. <laughs> Painful. But once it's done, you're like. You're like, yes. I'm, <laughs> I'm like in full procrastination mode right before I start. I'm just like, <laughs> I need to clean the house, do some laundry, do my email. Yep. You know, yep. do that for like a day or two before I actually start writing. Yep. Yeah. I go through that too. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. But yeah, I was working at the writing center the uh-huh. the entire time. And so um, I actually got a job right out of grad school, part-time to teach a couple English classes to international students Okay. in the liberal arts department. And okay. I still teach in that department and they're my okay. home department. Okay. Yeah. So I started there and then, you know, I being at SAIC part-time, then you just ask all the other departments, can I have a class? Can I have a class? Can I have a class? <laughs> And then eventually I started getting more and more classes and I uh, teach in like five different departments. Um, How many classes do you teach a semester? I teach five the whole year. So ne- right now oh, I'm okay. in it's four, like three, three I, two or something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm in, I teach in very many different places and different things. So it's pretty fun though, to be honest. Yeah. Because I teach English to international students. Okay. I do. Right now I do grad advising. Uh-huh. I teach a professional practice class to juniors. Okay. And that's really fun. And then... Wait, what does professional practice mean? Like how to do job interviews? Was it- You know, like what goes into becoming a professional artist. So we spend a lot of time like working on our artist statements okay. and our bios okay. and our CVs. Uh, and we get okay. a lot of guests come in and students ask like, you know... I tell them that they can always ask anyone nosy questions, mm-hmm. right? The questions like you're told not to ask, like how much money do you make a year? How much student debt loan are you? Like yeah. how many yeah. student debt are you in? <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. how do you get health insurance? You have, you know, like those yeah. kind of questions. Yeah, yeah. Just so they like get a sense of what that can look like when you're yeah. a professional do, artist. Do they still want to keep doing it? Sort of answers. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, <laughs> yeah. some of it's jarring for them. You can totally tell. But, you know, the feedback I usually get is like, oh, this is just, you know, yeah, the information you gave us in this class is not necessarily good information yeah. <laughs> or hopeful, but at least I know what I'm getting myself into. Yeah, yeah. And I can prepare in a certain way. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, so I teach that and I teach an art therapy class on sewing practices and wow. women of color feminism. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to talk more about sewing because, I mean, it's such a important part of your mom and you growing up and then also your own artwork and how it kind of intersects in your work and your identity in so many different ways. You know, I'm thinking about how you are sewing all these protest banners. I'm thinking about how, I, I mean, I didn't know about the story about you going to the different laundromats and talking to these different immigrant women and getting their the gene cufflinks. And I think that was like a really interesting, nice intersection for, I guess, the genesis of your sewing. But could you talk more about what is specifically about sewing that is so important to you and, and why you keep returning to it and how your relationship to it has sort of changed over the years? Yeah, I think, you know, like I mentioned, sewing is so important for me in so many ways because it's directly linked to my family's experience being immigrants in this country. 
right? It is, like I said, the thing I learned when I was six, you know? And so I think that I wasn't sewing for a long time in my practice, but once I started to do it, because I always sort of knew how to sew. I always fix my own clothes. I always like embroidered random stuff into my clothes. That's like, good. I always <laughs> wanted to sew. I didn't learn how to sew until during COVID peak time. Although I guess we're still in peak times now. But when I, I was like, okay, I'm going to sew. And like, I learned how to like sew my own mask. Oh, cool. That was when I actually learned, taught myself. It's hard. <laughs> yeah, it was so exciting to see like, I mean, that's not exciting because the context sucks. But it was like, I know a lot of people who taught themselves how to sew in that moment. You know? Yeah, yeah. And some people who have just gone off with it, you know. And so I think that is exciting to see. But yeah, once I started sewing in my practice, I was like, and me and my focus being about immigration, it just clicked. It was those, one of those things where it's like, mm-hmm. this just makes sense, yeah, yeah. right? Like this is, this process in it of itself is about my immigrant story, you know, mm-hmm. and beyond myself, right? When we look at who's doing this type of yeah, work. the labor of it. Yeah, immigrants. And I mean, if we look in this country, then it's like, yeah, like predominantly Asian, Latinx, women, immigrants of color, right? And- also, I want to mention that, you know, also that it's happening in prisons, right? All that free labor. Right, right. And the sort of the demands of that, the material fi- fabric, right? But also the like sewing, the demands of it needing it to always be very exploitative, mm-hmm. right? In whatever context, I think. And so, yeah, like I said, when I started to sew, I, it just clicked for me and it made a lot of sense. And It makes so much sense in other ways, too. Like I said, in terms of creating community engaged artwork, you know, textiles and sewing like really brings people together. Yeah, It's not intimidating, right? It's like things that people somewhat know how to do or have seen people do. It's soft. It's they have this material at home. Like, so it's very easy to be like, come bring some. Yeah, you wear it, you know. Yeah. (laughs) It's, yeah. not like, it's not it's not like welding. Exactly, exactly. So <laughs> it's not intimidating. And so it really like helps to bring people together. Yeah, yeah. Also thinking about the context of, yeah, my mom sewing. And I heard a couple other artists that I know talk about, you know, sewing being this like very important, like economically for women, particularly Asian American mm. women, you know, a lot of like single moms can make extra money sewing or like mm, not even yeah. if they're single moms, but like it, it becomes like a skill that yeah. you can keep coming back to, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. And so it has a lot of power in that kind of way. Right. 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 And also like being able to fix things as well. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, saving material. Although now with labor kind of being this sort of huge globalized thing, it's it, it, sadly, it's like easier and cheaper to uh, toss things away and buy a new one. Then yep. so. Yeah, it is the truth. And I think, you know, coming into the fiber department and being in the fiber craft world, I was so sort of flabbergasted of the whitewashing that happens, you know, with these conversations of sewing, right? Mm -hmm. It's like this Victorian era, sort of like romantic idea of like white women sitting at home and sewing for their family, (laughs) right? (laughs) And so like, that was the rhetoric. And that was like, sort of the ideas that just kept being talked about wait what was the fiber department in sac is that more like fashion or is it like art fabric yeah focus? it's more art 
Oh, okay. Focus, fine art focus. Yeah. They're still thinking about it from a Victorian standpoint. I mean, it becomes that. And I, oh, okay. I won't yeah. just say that it only happens in the fiber department. I think when yeah. we talk about women's work, mm, right? Mm, what is mm, women's work in the yeah. art context? Yeah, yeah. Ends up being, like I said, this like sort of fetish of like a wife at home, mm-hmm. yeah. cleaning and sewing yeah. and yeah. cooking. And yeah. it's this like super waspy, like super romantic idea of like white women, right? <laughs> and it comes from a very privileged place. And like, for me, it's not real, right? And so I think also like sewing became really important for me because I had that fight to fight as well. Mm, Right. To be like, this is so whitewashed. Why are we talking about sewing as labor that women do in the household? Mm. Right. For the family without looking at the labor that's being done in this present moment. Right. 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 In these exploitative situations in prisons. And, you know, like, Mm -hmm. why aren't we looking at that and talking about that as the labor? And so It felt really weird for me when people in the art context, right, were like, this work is about labor because I spent like a thousand (laughs) hours sewing it. And I'm like, wait, that's about leisure. That's about you having the time to sew it. How do you, you know, like looking at my mom sewing and that's labor, that's labor. So how do, how do these things become the same? Like, how do you put them in the same context? Like I, I got so infuriated (laughs) and so confused and (laughs) and so yeah so like my like the thing I keep talking about over and over again in these circles and how I frame sewing time and time again is like it is really a medium for women of color right Mm. and like instead of thinking about it as a medium of like second wave feminists right Mm -hmm. it really is our medium as women of color you know and I think like that is something I, I keep trying to push as well as like who's doing this work now like yeah. who's historically done this work too? Yeah, yeah. It's always yeah. actually been women of color, you know, mm-hmm. and still was, and still is. Yeah, and it still is, and so yeah. I mean, like for people who are interested to learn more, I think there's like three sort of books or texts oh, that are okay. coming to mind. Okay. Yeah, throw them out. I'll link them in, in the notes. Cool. Intimacies of Four Continents by Lisa Lowe. Okay. She talks about different materials and Mm -hmm. like porcelain or a certain kind of textile. And she sort of talks about relationships between different continents and Mm. labor between Mm -hmm. these things. And it's really beautifully written. But, you know, it's like this idea that this domestic space that, you know, gets super whitewashed, you know, where I'm saying this like domestic space where the woman is at home sewing for her family. Like that was never real and that it always depended on exploitative labor of people of Mm -hmm. color for that to become this like fantasized space. Right, right, right. I think about Ruptures of American Capital by Grace Kyung Wong Hong. Okay. That book is like so important for me because it talks about women of color, immigrant. I forgot exactly what the subtitle is, but it Mm -hmm. is about like women of color and like particularly immigrants. And it talks a lot about labor. Mm-hmm. And so like that book is so important for me. Yeah. And I even think about this beautiful text that I forgot. I really should look up the title of it, it's but okay. it's a text that Bell Hooks writes. That's uh-huh. really beautiful about her grandmother quilting Okay, and like how the quilts have functioned in the house and the aesthetics mm. of her grandmother's house and how her grandmother has been quilting her whole life, but like would never call herself an artist. And like, mm-hmm. yeah, I yeah, forgot yeah, exactly yeah. the title of this text, but it's really beautiful, you know? And even then thinking about, yeah, even in America, these like quilting 
history, yeah. mm-hmm. you know? And even that gets super whitewashed because like black women weren't making them predominantly, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, compounding that also just like this idea of it being a craft, right? And how does that enter the space? Contemporary art, right? The, the sort of the doing away of craft, the doing away of labor, hidden labor, or, uh, you know, paid labor for the purposes of the artist, right? Yeah. And coming back to like community-based practices is like sewing practices all over the world is very community-based, mm-hmm. right? And if we think about it, you know, it's only in this like Euro-Western culture that art, right, has an artist is made by it one person, right? The artist, right? Mm-hmm. I think in a lot of our different languages, like the word art doesn't even exist, right? It isn't different craft. It isn't different from. Mm. And so I think that that also is important for me that it acknowledges that art is made in non-Euro Western contexts and cultures, like it's made collectively. Yeah. I mean, and also the idea of like the artist with like a name attached to it is also relatively Euro and also new idea, right? You, you think mm-hmm. of, I mean, I, I I've been like going to a lot of these museums with like ceramics in in, around China and like they don't really have names to these artisans, right? They just have like the era that these different pots, porcelain pots and porcelain sculptures were made. But the actual person, this idea of like a singular person making these things, you know, wasn't really, I don't don't want to say important, but this ownership, this claiming of ownership of this thing wasn't as important, you know, for a huge part of the history as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, going back to the sewing and also how it kind of goes into these different community buildings, you know, I wanted to know more about how you got into these sort of protest banners. I know you've you've done a lot of different works, you know, with different communities, you know, sewing together. I know you've, you've held a, a workshop with, I believe, Colleen Smith at the Whitney, right, for the Whitney mm-hmm. Biennial for, for the yeah. sewing of these things. So, you know, can you talk a little bit more about some of the projects that you've done? And, you know, what did you learn about sewing as a community? And I think of th- about this in terms of, like, it's one thing to kind of sew with your mom, but then it's another thing to kind of transition that to teaching sewing or sewing with people that you don't really know or or as familiar with right Mm -hmm. yeah so purchase banner lending library i started that in 2016 really the day after it was announced that trump won the election (laughs) that was an intense day i know (laughs) that's yeah that that is why right and so for my project in 2016 for the elections the official unofficial voting station if you look at the installation i did at the whole house museum they were purchase banners essentially right before we go to that should we talk about your voting boosts first no I, we could talk about oh, we could okay. talk about this uh, okay. yeah but I, I already was thinking a lot about the language of purchase banners uh-huh. and it was interesting because with the whole house we sort of developed like program set a if hillary won program really? set b if trump won mm-hmm. yeah and mm-hmm. so they both had purchase banners in them they just were going to look very different right 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 right, right. <laughs> at least you thought of that possibility right because a lot of those news sources didn't even think that trump right, would win right exactly it was still hard to prepare because I, I think <laughs> we didn't quite know uh, yeah. what that would feel like, you know? know? Yeah. So, yeah. So the day after I was just started to make these purchase banners and it grew pretty organically. I was taking photos of the purchase banners I was making and I wasn't a citizen at the time. My kid was one year old at the time. Okay. So I was like, there are all these protests happening. I don't feel safe to go out there, you know? But I'm making these banners, like who wants to take them out? Right. And so people were responding to be like, I'll take that out. I'll go use that. Oh, really? Okay. And people were responding to be like, how do you make one of those? You know? (laughs) 
And so I started just putting on social media, like, hey, guys, like, I'm making banners tomorrow from this time to this time. DM me and I'll send you my address. Come over, bring some fabric, bring some booze. Let's just like make banners together. Right. And so I was doing that pretty regularly and soon so many people would show up to my tiny apartment you know <laughs> like maybe it could fit five people comfortably uh-huh yeah <laughs> and like 20 people would want to come and i'm like oh my god this is too big for me like what am i gonna do <laughs> and luckily different you know organizations art spaces community-based spaces were like also seeing that i was doing this yeah Yeah. and they were like hey do you want to come use our space can you do this for us and so it just grew in that kind of way and then you know as you see in my different projects previous i've work predominantly with non-citizens of color and a lot of people who are undocumented so Mm -hmm. a lot of those folks were showing up and making the banners with me and they also were like well i made one because i really wanted to have this said right Mm. but i can't take it out myself either right Mm. but the goal was always that it would be used right Mm -hmm. so then like i said me included i was like why are we making these (laughs) when we can't even take them out ourselves and you know the answer is easy is like you know i already said it right to like have our voices be heard like have these slogans out there. And then I was like, well, if so many of the people that are making with me can't take them out ourselves, like, you know, in this project, how can I position it so that they go out into the world? Mm-hmm. So I was sort of mulling that over for some time right. and then was like, oh yeah, like libraries, right? And it was sort of cool because like the whole house, they used to have an art lending library. Right. Which is a rare thing. Yeah. There's one in Pittsburgh too, the Braddock Library. Do you know about that oh, one? Oh, cool. No, I don't. I don't yeah. know about that one. Yeah. Yeah. There's some several ones, but they were, I think Hull House was like, you know, in the early 1900s, like okay. it started, I can't say with certainty, but I'm pretty sure they were like the first, the first art one. lending library. Okay. Right. right. Yeah. And it was specifically for the settlement, right. For mm-hmm. the immigrant mm-hmm. community. Right. Yeah. Anyway. So I was like, I love that idea. And it was sort of in the back of my head too. And I was like, Oh yeah. If I make a purchase banner lending library, then people can come and check them out and use them. And, and, take, and then take them back. Can, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so yeah. that's how that idea came about. And so, yeah, I've done workshops all over the world really. And it's an exciting project in a lot of ways for me. And I learn a lot wherever I take it, because obviously like when I'm in a new place and the workshop happens, like then I really get to see what concerns, you know, what's happening in that place because of the banners that are coming up, the slogans people are making, you know, when they're telling me where they're going to use it and how they're going to activate it. Like I get to learn so much. Right? I think that's a really smart way to sort of enter and observe a community, right? Because that's probably one of the hardest things to do with community building, especially one that uh, you're not living in, right? Sort of how do you engage with this community? How do you talk to them and find out about them without them feeling like they're just there to give you information, right? And I mm-hmm. think in that sense, you know, I always thought the idea of like the protest banner is really smart because it's giving these people a platform to speak in a way that seems like they're part of the process, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think like, you know, I think a lot of organizers and activists, like, and I think the general public too, can see how important these protest signs and banners and how important art and it is visually, 
right? Yeah. And yeah. emotionally and beyond, right? Mm-hmm. In protests and political actions, like it's so important to have these things. And I think the general public who aren't used to making art regularly, there's definitely that intimidation, right? Mm-hmm. People come yeah. in and they're like, I really want to make this protest banner that says this, but I'm like really, I don't know yeah. how to sew. Yeah. I don't I'm, know how to do art. Can you I don't, I don't know me? art. Yeah, yeah, all that, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to paint. I've never done a drawing since I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. So I get a lot of that hesitation when they first enter the door. Yeah. yeah. Then, you know, being like, oh, it's just fabric. Don't worry about it. You don't have to know how to sew. It's super easy. Don't worry. I'll teach you everything, you know? And it is really that easy. The process is super easy. And I think this is also why I love fabric and textiles is like, some of these processes are like, oh yeah, so freaking exhausting and hard. But some of them could be so simple, right? Yeah. And I like love that, right? It's so accessible in a lot of ways. Yeah, so it, it's exciting to be like, no, no, you could totally make this. And here, I'm teaching you the exact skills like I and steps that I use in my studio to make my art. Like, mm. you know, these go into museums sometimes when they're done. Like, yeah, this yeah. becomes art. And so that becomes exciting because a lot of people, yeah, they'll take notes. And then afterwards, they'll be like, what is that material that you use? Mm-hmm. Like, I need to grab some more. And so, yeah, where do you people, buy it? Yeah, then there's this like that intimidation of making the banner goes away afterwards. Mm. Right. And then yeah. I see so many people excited and continue to make so many more after these workshops, you know. And when we think about revolution and protests, like you don't just make one and it's done. It's like, we have to keep going, yeah. we have to keep going, you know? The work never ends. Exactly. And so I think that's exciting for me in the workshops too, is like the skill, right? Places the skill of these really easy steps, like to as many people as possible. So we can just keep right. going. Right. So, and, and then I think in that sense, the protest banner fits really well with, you know, whenever you do these proposals for residencies, right? This this idea that allows you to kind of enter these different communities and, and giving them a platform. I think that's really smart, smart way to sort of have that work in your practice, you know, and something that I wish that I had. I, I'm still just making my own weird videos and trying to convince residencies <laughs> to let me keep doing them. But I really wish, you know, hopefully I can at some point, you know, take one of your workshops and learn how to sew from you i'm curious you know going back a little bit if you could talk a little bit about the voting booths that you did the collaboration i was looking it up and was it like a group collaboration or you were the sort of the person who started it and got all these different artists to help out i mean i did it twice so far so the official unofficial voting station voting for all who legally can't, is a long name, but it was called the official unofficial voting station. Um, <laughs> a long name. <laughs> we need to get a better name for that. <laughs> when I write about it, I use OBS, right? O U B S. But yeah, so I created that project in 2016. I worked with the Jane Addams Hell House Museum. So the answer is yeah, I'm sort of the artist, right? But then it's sort of different in each context. Like I said, with, right. in 2016, it was really like with the Hull House Museum because mm. I couldn't have done it without them. And a lot of the collaborators were within my networks, but also theirs as well. Mm. You know? see, so we really collaborated and came together to create that project. Right. Yeah. And so, like I said, with the 2016 election, at the time I wasn't a citizen and I couldn't vote. And knowing and being really close to like, 
following immigration and immigration policy. We know that that was like the main thing at stake in 2016. And it was like so many non-citizens would be impacted, undocumented people would be impacted and, you know, people on work visas would be impacted. And But we're the ones that can't vote, you know? So we have no say with like, the safety of ourselves and our communities. Right. And so then I started asking that question of, I was like, I know that, you know, non-citizens can't vote because I'm in that category, but I actually don't know who else can't vote. Mm, Right. Yeah. And so I started researching that question, right. Who can't legally vote in the United States. And I was really surprised that number one, there's so little data and information about it. Hmm. You mean like percentages of people who can't vote? Yeah. Percentages like, even like the lists of who can't legally vote, like that mm. isn't available. Like it was clear that like people aren't asking this question right. at all. Right. right. And it's like taking me years of researching this to finally get some answers. And some of those answers is that there are no answers <laughs> or that there is no or very little data. Yeah. And it's very unclear. Right. But it's like, yeah, of course, youth under 18, non-citizens, If we're counting residents of U.S. territories, which we should, right, is like they can't legally vote for the general election. Which is also weird that we still have that, right? Yeah. Like Puerto Rico. Guam. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's like they can't vote. And then incarcerated, informally Mm -hmm. incarcerated people, depending on what states. And those laws are constantly changing, right? So the sentencing project is a really great place to look at if you're interested in that in particular. People who don't have access to or people without the correct IDs, if your state requires a certain type of ID, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then in certain states, those deem mentally incapacitated. Mm. So like people under conservatorship. They can buy a gun though. Yeah, you know, (laughs) yeah, it makes no logical sense. It literally makes no sense. Yeah, so I found this one number. It was the only place I could find like any sort of percentage or like a number. Uh, And it was the U.S. election project in 2016 said 28.6% of the population was ineligible to vote. So that's like... Wait, what does that mean by population? People living in the U.S.? Yes. So it didn't even count residents of U.S. territories. Yeah. Okay. And it didn't count the last category, those being mentally incapacitated. Right. But that number alone is like... 98 million people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 28.6% of the population. That's a low estimate, right? So like, mm-hmm. well, how come we're not having that conversation when we're talking about voting or voting suppression, right? It was just so crazy to me, right? The rhetoric around voting is like, we all need to, it's going to fix things. We all need to go and vote, but we're not looking at voting yeah. itself as a discriminatory process and system itself, right? Yeah. Anyways. Well, there's so many levels, right? Yeah. So then I was like, I'm going to create a voting station, but I can't create one. <laughs> like, what's the most to do, man? I'm going to create like one station for like those 98 million. Yeah. That doesn't make sense. And so me and the whole house were like, let's invite artists and activists and mm. people we know within our networks all mm. over the world, mm-hmm. all over U.S. and Mexico who are interested to create their own voting station, mm. you know, and because we're reimagining voting, it doesn't need to look like voting. People could do whatever they want. Right, you know? right, right. And so that's how in 2016, we work with 15 different artists, organizations, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. We created more than 25 different stations all over U.S. and Mexico. And that was really exciting. And so in 2020, I wanted to do it again. But in 2016, because of like the amount of time we had, we only could ask sort of our immediate networks. Mm, I see. And from the Protest Banner Lending Library, what I learned was that it's really exciting when when people you don't know, right? When like right, the public right. has more access to right. the project. And so for 2020, I created 50 kits with art and objects that were created by myself and other Chicago-based artists that I commissioned. So it's like, yeah, official and official ballots, stickers for those who can't legally vote, wristbands for those who can't legally vote, a playlist Mm -hmm. of Chicago musicians Mm -hmm. by Sadie Woods. Like we had a bunch of art objects in there. And I created 50 and anyone can request a kit to activate in whatever way they want. And so, of course, the pandemic happened and I was like, no one's going to want a kit. (laughs) I'm done. But luckily, all 50 kits went out into the world and were used. Wow. Yeah. It's sort of funny because we're still sort of in the process of collecting being in touch with the people who activated them to just be like, you, yeah, do you have any documentation? Do you want to share what happened? And it's not a requirement. So we're not like bugging people, but we're like, hey, yeah, we would like to know how they got used. And so we're still putting that together. <laughs> what was one use that you really enjoyed kind of discovering? Well, I mean, I love I worked on, with Carol, though, on the her motorcycle one. Yeah, the Moto Voto one, and that was really fun. Where do you ride a motorcycle? No, I am oh. uh, pretty scared of motorcycles. <laughs> <laughs> but Carol's badass, so that's cool. Yeah, but um, yeah, Carol took a voting kit and put it on the back of her motorcycle and mm-hmm. drove around LA to collect the symbolic votes that way. So that was really awesome. Because of the pandemic, it became sort of less of artists activating the kits and more of using it as pedagogical tools Mm. like working with teachers or like you know art education programs to activate the kits yeah yeah. so a couple of the kits got activated by a student group with mural arts philadelphia okay and like that was really exciting because there was a public installation of murals in love park so downtown in philadelphia right around the elections in 2020 Mm -hmm. and that student group took a kit and created this standalone structure with the materials of the kit and the qr code to the website so people could vote that way and then student generated art around voting Mm -hmm. that was really awesome yeah but there was a lot of really exciting ways that people use the kits and yeah and definitely that's like one of my favorite projects just because it's like very exciting to collaborate with so many different yeah. people. Yeah. You know? and when also like, I think the activation of it, right. I think that's sort of the hard thing about a lot of these community building and uh, social practice things. Like everyone's trying to figure out this activation, but you never know until you put it out in the world, whether people will activate it or not. Right. Some people yeah. might not be attached to it or, or care about it, but you never really know until it actually goes out in the world. And there's like the, sort of scary moments where you're like "Mm, what will happen yeah yeah oh yeah and i uh worked with an activist to send a bunch of mail-in ballots into prisons in illinois so we sent about like 500 plus and can people in illinois were incarcerated vote or was it no okay yeah they lose their right when they're in prison but when they come out they regain their right to vote and so we mailed them these official unofficial ballots and Mm -mm. 
yeah, we got hundreds and hundreds of them back. I don't know the exact number, but I would say we got almost all of them back. Like we spent more than 500, I would say maybe five, 600. Okay. And we got at least 400 back, like mailed back to us. It was amazing. Yeah. And really long letter sort of like writing to me like that this is, you know, I've never, it's so interesting that you asked me to vote and sort of explaining their answers. And, you know, and I think like some of the interesting correspondences were like, one of the questions I asked on the ballot is like, should the voting age be lowered? Okay. Right. From 18. 18. Okay. Right. And I don't have firm answers for that, but I am curious, right? Like, so on one of the ballots, I asked, like, should we, you know, let non-citizens vote? Mm. Should we lower the voting age? If so, to what age? Like, should we let residents of U.S. territories vote? Mm-hmm. Should we let incarcerated people vote and formally mm. incarcerated vote? Should we have voter ID laws? Like, I sort of ask about all the voting laws, right? Like, should we have these barriers, right? Yeah. And they're interesting. The answers I get to those are super interesting. But I think that one that, you know, this sort of idea of like, should we lower the voting age is one I get asked a lot and I don't have sort of answers for. I think yes, right? But I mean, yes, but I don't know to what age. And so I had a letter telling me that youth can get tried as an adult at 15 and sometimes even at 13, Mm. right? So shouldn't we lower the voting age to that age? Mm -hmm. Because if they can be tried as an adult, then we we should be able to vote at that age. Well, and we also have adults who believe in, you know, QAnon and all those other stuff. So I'm not (laughs) sure being adult means you're more socially responsible, but... Exactly. Might as well be a kid, just believe in aliens, right? No different. (laughs) Hey, I believe in aliens. I want to. I wish they were real. Take me. Yeah. Take me, yeah. Well, you're, yeah, you're already I, taken. That's true. And you've arrived. Well, then I'm ready for a different yeah. place. But, uh, but yeah, no. So that was super interesting activation of the voting stations as well. And so, yeah, it's exciting. And, you know, you can see on the website official unofficial.vote. Um, it's still open and people can still vote actually on that website. And people's answers to I'm voting here because they're on there in eight Mm. different languages. Mm. People wrote in their own candidates to uh, vote on. People wrote in issues they want to vote on. And then Mm -hmm. they could vote on other people's issues. And so you can see all of those tallies on the website. Mm -hmm. And we've collected more than like 8,000 votes. Mm. So that is really exciting as well to just see that this project, you know, got so many responses. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a really important topic and everyone's still trying to figure it out. We all know our government's still fighting all over it, right? And it's mm-hmm. still nothing's happening with whatever the solution that they are proposing to be. So, yeah, you know. Yeah, this number might go up even more, right? This, mm-hmm. like, those who are ineligible to vote. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What are you working on right now? Do you have anything coming up? I look, I saw that you have a show coming up at Mocha Cleveland. So congrats on that. Thank it's you. It's like eight days from now, right? Yeah. Is it ready? Are you flying to Cleveland or is it, or, or driving? You, you're quite close actually from Chicago. It is close. Yeah. <laughs> but last time I went, I flew. So it, uh, okay, okay, it, okay. it makes sense. Okay. Yeah. I didn't realize how close, but it's, I don't want to drive. Oh. <laughs> But yeah, it opens on the 29th 
And so it's very close. And yeah, it's a solo exhibition at Mocha Cleveland. And all the work is done and it's going up or has already gone up. Okay. Thankfully. So remote installation. Yeah, remote installation. And I unfortunately, the opening, they postponed the opening. Mm. Not the Mm. opening itself. They will open, but the sort of reception. Right, 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 right. Because of COVID. And so we're going to do a closing, I believe, rather than an opening. Mm. Yeah, but it is just the way it is. But I am excited to you know, see the work and see the installation. And we're doing a bunch of different programs as well. So I'm like really excited about. So like protest banner workshops or. Yes. And then um, I've been creating a project called the Protest Garment Lab, where me and different artists and makers have been making protest. They're like garments that have hidden protest banners within them. Like garments that you're wearing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's like clothes that have hidden protest banners. Uh, Really thinking about safety, right? Okay. Like it's discreet and safe, Mm -hmm. right? Because yeah, you're like quite a target when you're like walking with a big poster sign, right? And so- So what's an example of this garment? My One of my favorites is my collaborator, Eric Guy, and he's actually here helping me with the garment right now oh, <laughs> he's like in the basement right now oh, okay. <laughs> he made these pants with huge enormous pockets okay right so he puts his hands into his pants pockets he flips his pockets inside out okay right like he's okay. emptying out his pockets right right and those turn into purchase banners that says capitalism <laughs> oh. sucks oh, okay <laughs> Then he shoves the, after he's done using it, he like shoves them back into his pants. Mm, I see, I see. Yeah, so, but there's, um you know, dresses that open up and mm, there's like mm, zippers mm. you you undo and then things fall out. Right, um, right, right, right. So in March, this women's only Korean traditional drumming group that okay. I'm in. Oh, really? We, you, you drum? Yes. Uh. <laughs> We're drumming, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we... We'll perform with some of those garments mm. in the museum in March. Yeah. Okay. That's that pretty fun. cool. Yeah. yeah. And then we're also doing a virtual programming where I had a residency at Print Room in Rotterdam. And okay. we created the second edition of our book, Me and Ishita Durap. We have a collaborative project called Cute Rage Press. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so the second uh, edition of Taking Receipts, which is a log of aggression against people of color. Right. Okay. And so we created this log where you could log your incidents of racism mm-hmm. and discrimination, mm-hmm. just in case you have to like show proof, right, that you're being discriminated against. Right. And so we created the second edition of the book for Print Room, which actually is going to be printed tomorrow. OK. You mean like you can buy it tomorrow? You mean? No, like we're going into production. tomorrow. Oh, oh OK. OK. Yeah. So it's all Rezo printed. And so it'll be done tomorrow. Rezo prints are so pretty. Yeah, it's really beautiful. And so Mocha Cleveland, in collaboration with Print Room, we're going to do a virtual programming inviting a lawyer to come in and talk about like how to best protect yourself, right? In these Mm. instances of discrimination, Mm. like what type of logs you should take, like Mm. who you should seek out, you know, that sort of program as well. Because a lot of the works that I have for my social at Mocha Cleveland, it's sort of all about this sort of political literacy that we have to learn as people of color Mm -hmm. or as immigrants, Mm -hmm. right? It's sort of like, what do we have to learn to protect ourselves? Right, 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 right. On so many different levels, right? From like a daily level to, you know, institutional level to 
like you said, protest level. There's so many different ways to, and they have to think about. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. So then within the museum, what form does this take? All the different pieces? Is it like everything? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, it's exciting because yeah. like they really let me take over a lot of the museum and sort of space. Wait, wait, the whole, I've been to the museum. It's huge. No, not the whole part, uh, but I have the first floor. Okay, yeah. Right when you walk in, um, there's a big space. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. There's artworks up there. Yeah. But they let me take over their entire staircase, the okay. monumental staircase. Yeah, 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 yeah. And their elevators. So I put okay. artwork inside uh, the elevator. Okay. Yeah. So that was really fun. That's awesome. I wish you could go yeah. see it. Well, um, you know, to all the listeners, please go check it out. I mean, this episode will probably be released a little after the actual official opening, but... Uh, I think your show goes up for like six months, right? Yeah, till wait, I forgot when it. Yeah, it's like in the summer <laughs> that it, it it closes in the summer, and then I have another upcoming solo exhibition at the Skirball Cultural Center in Los Angeles. Okay. I don't have the exact dates yet, but it will open to the public in April. Okay. And be up till the fall. That's awesome! Congrats on all these shows. Thank you. Thank yeah. You. Are you stressed out by all this stuff that? You have to finish or always always okay <laughs> i have a kid you're very calm that's why it's, it's like you're very calm i would say you've got a lot of energy and you're calm at the same time i don't sense like a nervous energy okay that's good no i um luckily most of the work is done it just you know yeah it's like that last 10 percent feels yeah, harder yeah. than the 90 percent you know? i know i know sometimes i wish i painted because then you just literally just ship the paintings and then <laughs> like i have some painter friends who just like yeah i just installs easy i just dropped it off and then <laughs> right 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 yeah yeah it's a, it's a challenge yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah the mocha cleveland work was a bit harder because it wasn't pre-existing work mm. right yeah. I made new work for it. Mm -hmm. And me and my studio assistant worked, I'll tell you how many hours in a little bit, but we created these, um, it's six panels of silk that's 12 feet long. Uh -huh. So I created these curtains with the messages to the red card messages to mm -hmm. police and authorities okay. on them. Okay. We hand embroidered or hand appliqued satin letters onto silk. Mm. And it was so hard. And it sounds pretty. Yeah, it is really beautiful, but it was excruciating. And I'm sure. Yeah, it took us over 650 hours. Wow. The three of us to complete it. And so I don't think I've spent anything on any artwork, <laughs> a single artwork with that many hours. Yeah, I calculated the hours afterwards. I was like, oh my God, what were we thinking? Yeah. <laughs> yeah so yeah it's the red card statement to authorities and police and i wanted to put them on curtains just you know thinking about sort of claiming the home space as mm, this protected mm, space and right. when they show up i also love the sort of petty act of like closing, closing the windows oh, yeah yeah and then it being like i do not wish to speak with you <laughs> i do not consent to this right and so yeah <laughs> And, yeah, and then we have uh, cards in different languages available for people. To oh, that's take. nice. Yeah, and so that's part of the work that's there. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope it goes well, and I hope everything goes smoothly, as smoothly as things can go during these times of COVID. And what you yeah, know, yeah. I, I have. I think one last question kind of popped up, just kind of like as we're talking, but sort of you were talking about your parents kind of 
going to Central California and sort of that whole move being on a ranch. I was curious what you thought of the movie Minari that came out last year. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Good question. I'm going to admit that the first time I watched it, I had to turn it off because I was like, I was a bit too triggered. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The most triggering part was actually the grandmother having a stroke Uh, because my grandmother had a stroke Uh. and she couldn't walk or talk by herself. And she lived with us post stroke for, I believe like 15 years in that state. And so that was really triggering. (laughs) And so that's what I was like, Oh, this is a little too close. to And I've never had that actually where I've had to like turn something off. Cause I was like, yeah, it's too too close to real life. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) And then I watched it again on a plane. On a plane. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was very close to home in a lot of ways. Let's, yeah, I think because of that, I can't say I loved it. Okay, yeah, like, yeah, a little too triggering for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've already lived that, so you don't need to see it sort of fetishized in a fictionalized version, right? Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, and also it was just like so sad, right? So it was like, but I do love that that movie was made and that it got the recognition it did and yeah you know the actors that were part of it i really and the story that it's telling like i don't want to undermine that at all i loved it great it was just a little triggering for me (laughs) yeah and you're describing you know growing up in central california i was like thinking about that i was like because it's one thing to move to say koreatown in la and it's mm-hmm. another thing to move to. I think the movie is set in like Georgia, right? Arkansas? Or Arkansas. Yeah, Arkansas. Yeah, Arkansas, right? And so it's like one thing to go for LA, but it's another thing to go to like Arkansas or Central California, right? Yeah. So yeah, we moved to Central California because my aunt was already there. Yeah. And then our plan was always to go to LA, actually. Oh, yeah. And my dad, I think, had a job lined up in LA, but then it didn't pan out because we moved in 1992 and the LA riots. Right, right. Happened. Right, yeah. Right, yeah. So I think his job fell through. And so we also ended mm. up not moving. Yeah. But yeah. we were always, we were meant to go to LA. Yeah. Not, well, yeah. Now I don't know if it's worth <laughs> not it. What it's, it's, it's like, <laughs> yeah. Where are you right now? I'm in China right now. Cool. Where? I'm in uh, this city called Zhuhai, which is uh, north of Macau and it's across the, the ocean from Hong oh, Kong. Wow. I'm an hour between both of them. So So you're by the ocean right now? Yes. Actually, I'm actually li- where I'm living is uh, I can walk to the ocean in 10 minutes. I can see it from my window. Wow. Is it warm? The ocean? I, I don't know because the, the water is not clean so you can't swim in it but the oh, okay. it's i mean it's subtropical so it's, oh, it's, wow. it's, it's warm yeah that's nice what are you doing there uh i'm teaching I have okay a, i have a university our teaching job oh cool so you spend most of your time there or are you in the states or you go back and forth or well you know with covid you can't really go back and forth but uh, right. i got the job two and a half years ago and um yeah i was uh I taught taught here for for like one semester. Went back for residency, and then China closes borders, so I was stuck in actually my parents' home for nine months, and then kind of rekindled my relationship with my parents as an adult. Oh, that's nice. It's nice, yeah. 
Uh, and then I came back when they reopened uh, two Novembers ago. Yeah. Okay. Where do your parents live? They live in New Hampshire. Okay. Yeah, so also rural. So sort of like, I hated it growing up, but then in a sort of funny twist, like all the residencies I was going to were just as rural as New Hampshire. <laughs> and then so when I came back, I was sort of like, oh, like, I kind of get it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. So the issue of traveling is just that uh, China's borders are closed. So, like, if I leave, my visa will basically possibly be canceled. So then I can't re-enter. So. Complicated, yeah. Yeah. So I, but I would love to go back to the States, you know, maybe come, come by Chicago and meet you or go to Cleveland, check out the show. Right now I can't really cool. leave. Right, right. Where did you do your education? Where did you, you, cause you have an MFA, right? Yeah. So I went to, I went to Cornell for painting. That's where I met Carol. And oh, okay. I, st- I stayed in touch with Carol. Actually after Cornell, I actually taught SATs in Korea for two years. So I was in Korea for two years. Cool. Um, good money I, right there. Hourly it was good, but the number of hours that I worked wasn't, which was fine because okay. it allowed me to just sort of hang out. And then I got my MFA from Carnegie Mellon. Okay, cool. Yeah. That's cool. You've been all over. I like traveling, you know. I think, I mean, I think you do too, right? If you, when you Yeah. We, we try to make it work when we can. Although now it's a little hard. Right, yeah. <laughs> I know I was, um, our, the, my partner's sabbaticals next fall. Uh-huh. We're in that place where, like, should we plan something? Should we not? Should we, you know? But it's like, we just have to go for it. Like, fuck it at this point. It's, yeah, it. it's hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a bummer. But we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So, again, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And, yeah, hopefully I'll meet you at some point in the future. Cool. Yeah, nice to talk to you. Carol yeah. says hi, and um, good luck with all the work. Carol, I talk to her, like, every day, so. <laughs> we text, like, every day. Really? That's good. <laughs> That's more than me. But I, I catch up with her, like, maybe once a month or so. Just say hi and t- talk, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, I love Carol. She's awesome. I love that Aries energy. <laughs> <laughs> That was such a pleasure talking to you. Hopefully we'll meet in the future. Yeah, I loved it. It was great talking. Thanks. And uh, have a wonderful day. You too. Bye. Bye. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziwon Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoy this show and have the time, I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, Thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.